told me not to swear anymore. <laughs> we have got to have a dinner together. I mean, I, we would have had it, I think, by now if the plague hadn't come in, because it, it just would be so good to have an... Well, we already had one dinner and a movie. We've got to do it again. Um, we've got to do it again. Um, anyway, the, the, uh, if you go to the content option at the top right, it'll take you to every one of the works, authors that we've um, done. And at the bottom, there are two links, one to Francis and one to Seton. And under the Seton, you, by the way, you're welcome to go in any of it. You can use the stuff on the, the Francis material. You're, you know, I, I, I'm talking with Mike about requiring a, um, a, um, a password because I, I don't know what the public, we're get, I'm getting lots of hits all over the world from England and Japan. I mean, people are, are, are getting to literature's prophecy. So there's peop, lots of people coming on, which I'm really pleased about. My real concern is I, I just, I hope the number of younger people, I'd like to get kids in high school and college dealing with this stuff because I think they need it so badly. To, I mean, we all need it, but anyway, it's available. So feel free to use whatever you want. You can go into the Francis folder and if there's something there that would helpful. Chris, I'm thinking particularly about you and the other teachers in the class. There's outlines and things that it, it it's yours. Use it. Yeah, this is this is amazing. Yeah. This is a really, really awesome uh, setup and everything. So have you yeah. gone online and looked at the course? I uh, yeah, I'm I'm on it right now. Like, oh, it's, it's yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of stuff here. It's really, really good. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. I don't know who designed it, but the, your web page is really awesome. I wish I could take credit for all of that, but a lot of that has to do with Mike, this this young UD graduate who's been helping me. Because I'm, I'm, this is all, this is all. Great job. He's the one who chose the picture for the home page. When I left one day, this was all originally at Francis, but then they moved me off because they wanted to simplify things and. And the, the the young woman who'd done it then had organized it by playlist, by author, you know. But when they transferred it to the web, the guy who transferred it made a mess of it. Just, um, but Mike took it and, you know, working together to organize it the way you have chronologically, he's put that all there. So when you go to Homer the Iliad, you go to the Iliad. When you go to Shakespeare's merchant, you know, you go there, or Dostoevsky or whoever, so, and eventually I want to get a blog um, so that people can respond with their comments, you know, that people can talk to each other. I've, I've asked Mike and the young woman, he's, um, he and another young woman are, looks like they're moving towards an engagement. I've also mentioned it to you, Chris, I don't know if you and Teresa would but I'd like to get some young people, some UD graduates. Um, actually, I would be glad to have somebody a little bit older of your group. If any of you want to get online because you're, you feel a commitment to, you know, whatever we're doing, and you want to engage people online, I would, I would love to have any help. You know, if, if any of you feel inclined, let me know. Okay. Okay. Um, Oh God. <laughs> um, so, Maria's just coming on. Um, 
was I going to say? A couple of things tonight. Um, so you all know that that the you you know about the blog. Hi, Maria. Good to see you again. Uh, good. What a what a wonderful smile. Um, good to see you again. I'm just letting everybody know about the blog. I think everybody knows already, but um, I, I just want to make sure because I feel like we're still finding our way. So you can get on the blog. Um, I'm going to plan to finish the Odyssey next week. That may be a little bit abrupt, but I think we can do it. Um, so I'm asking everybody to get a copy of Virgil's um, Aeneid. I don't know if you can see that. It's Robert Fitzgerald translation. Robert Fitzgerald's translation. Um, be sure you get that one so that when we go through the book, we're on the same page together. Okay, and it's, that's important. Um, when we do the when we do the Aeneid, you guys will basically have, and I'm not exaggerating on this. I'm not blowing a horn here. To you guys will have the natural foundation for our church. I'm not exaggerating that. You'll have the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, which were the three great epics of the ancient world, the pagan world. What they did was show the best, the best of our natural goodness. And I'm going to come back to this when I start our class today. Um, you'll have the best of our natural goodness. That natural goodness is lost in our world. Absolutely lost. The scientific world has no sense of it. The Protestant world has badly undermined it. When you read those works, you're going to discover that there is this great goodness man is capable of without Christ. It won't get him to heaven, but it, it shows man working with the divine order, able to do things and deal with evil um, in a way that you won't see in the modern world. Because if, you, if you're following literature or films, you know that most heroes are bad or anti-heroes or criminals or, you know... So when we when we do when we finish the Iliad or the the Aeneid, we you guys will basically have the foundations of Western civilization. Saint Augustine could not have done what he did without these poets. He he wept when he when he read the Aeneid. He loved Virgil deeply. He wept. Um, um, we're we're not going to do the philosophers, but when we get to after. Virgil will do Boethius. When we do Boethius, we will talk a little bit about Aristotle and Plato, and you will get something of the best of the philosophic foundation of Western civilization. So Virgil, Boethius, by the time we're through with, so the next two works, Boethius, Virgil, Boethius, you will have the beginnings of the Catholic Church of Christendom in the Western world. And um, you will have the best that our culture is given um, as a foundation, you know, for whatever happens afterwards. But anyway, we're going to, so next week I'll plan to f try to finish the yeah. Odyssey. We may take a little bit of time the following week, but if we do, it'll be just a little bit. I'm, I want to get on to Virgil. With Virgil, <clears throat> we're, we're dealing with a Trojan who survived the Trojan War in the Iliad. Okay? Like Odysseus. He's one of the survivors. But we're going to get the perspective from a Trojan now, not a Greek. We're going to go back to that Trojan War, see Troy de destroyed, and one of its heroes, this man named Aeneas, one of the great heroes on the Trojan side in the Iliad, will have to set out to found a new home. He will try for eight years. 
He tries and tries and tries. And every time he tries to found a city, something goes wrong. And because it's not in the God's plans, he doesn't know quite yet what to make of them. It's, it's one of the great themes of the Aeneid is the theme of the calling. Somebody's called to do something. And if you can imagine a calling for a priest or a husband and wife in a marriage. I'm saying that very seriously because I think most, most married couples today think marriage is a marriage. It's a, it's a calling. When you enter into a calling and you think you're responding to the God, you discover, do I have it right? Have I got it right? Did I misunderstand? You turn a corner and think it's there and, and it's not there. So um, a calling, a marriage, you know, just when you think, I'm settled, I love my wife, she loves me. Um, we just had a fight, maybe we don't. <laughs> you know, who, know, who knows what goes on? Um, but the, one of the great themes is the theme of a calling, but more importantly, it's a calling to found Rome. And as you know, Rome will be the center of Christendom, still is today. Something is going on in that city, God, <laughs> that 90% of the Catholics today have no clue about. Just no clue. So you're, you're, you, we will be reading a book about the founding of Rome, what Rome means in history. It's something the modern world doesn't understand. Um, but it will complete those three foundation works, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. So get Robert Fitzgerald's um, Virgil's The Aeneid. We'll start it in two weeks. Next week we'll finish the Odyssey. Um, and I think, I think that's it on news. Um, any questions from you guys? <clears throat> it's good to see you all again. <clears throat> it's good to see you all. I really thought we'd have more people tonight. I'm really hoping we will recover some of the people we've lost after this thing. Um, but and if you know any of these people, shake them, you know, get them, get them back. Um, okay, I think... I think that's, I feel like I'm forgetting something. It's just too much going on for me. Um, what I'd like to do is say a prayer and then read a poem. I'm going to read two poems tonight. Um, one of Hopkins' dark poems. It's like the poem I read last week. And um, a poem that's um, more affirmative. It's a celebration of God's gl glory in the world. So I'll, I'll read two, and I'll probably read the same two next week because we're reading two. Because I wanted to pick up the dark poem again. You know, we read Carrying Comfort last week, if you remember. Hopkins was saying, no, I'll not feed on you, Carrying Comfort. Carrying is the dead car car um, carcasses that vultures feed on. Um, that's an image of the despair every one of us is capable of. When, we, when things go bad, feel sorry for ourselves, despair. Despair means lose hope. I think it's the great sin. When, when, when Christ talks about the one sin against the Holy Spirit, I think that's it. Because despair means not hoping in God anymore. Just, you know, that. Anyway, Hopkins is dealing with that in that poem, and he starts out by saying, not, I'll not feed on you, you know, care and comfort. This is another poem, it's a, um, dealing with darkness. It's a spiritual crisis in Hopkins' life. Um, so I wanted to pick that up, um, and, but I'll end it with a positive poem and then we'll start the class, okay? Any questions about anything going on? 
I'm going to, in a, in a few moments when we start, I'm going to mute everybody. Um, once again, because I've been told that if I mute everybody, it, um, it helps put away an echo in the sound, that it, it will improve the sound. But I just want to remind you all, I'm going to mute you all. And this is a very serious thing with me. If you have a question at any time during the class, I'm going to stop periodically and ask questions, you know. But if you have a question or clarification or something, do not hesitate to unmute and get back on. Interrupt. I, I, I've said this before. I do not think there are bad questions. I, I know this for myself. I know it from teaching forever. That sometimes kids younger, I mean, I spent my life with younger people. People don't ask questions because they're often too embarrassed. N nobody shouldn't be, nobody, nobody should be embarrassed. It's just, and I don't think, I don't think most of you are going to hear that. Um, what is the poem that you're going to read? I'll tell you in a minute. Um, okay. <laughs> um, do not interrupt, do not, do not interrupt, Chris. <laughs> I'm telling you guys. I know. I laugh. Feel feel free to interrupt all of you guys anytime. But the the more important thing for me is I I just my experience as a teacher. I think I've said this to you guys. A great part of my own learning as a teacher has come from questions that kids felt embarrassed to ask. They thought they were too simple. My response is, I've got clear in my own head what I think. But very often when somebody asks a question of me, it forces me to think about it in a different way. It can be an obvious question, but it forces me to answer it in another way. And I cannot describe the kind of learning that's taken place in my own life when that's happened. So there are no bad questions. I'm saying that honestly, unless you're being a jerk and none of you guys is. Um, so, so I'll mute you when we start. Um, I, we'd, I'd like you to take seriously what I'm saying. If you have a question, interrupt, ask. Please, please do that. Please. I'm asking that seriously. Um, I'm going to say a prayer. Eventually, we'll get around to asking for prayer requests, but I'm, I still want to get us going. So if you could just hold on. If you've got prayer requests, send them to me by email. We will include them, um, but I'm going to not do it online for a while until till things smooth out a little bit, okay? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass this day, for your words to us. Um, all of the readings, all of your words, the last um, week or two had been hard, hard things. Reminders of our failings, our turning away from you, um, your fidelity, your readiness um, to receive us in a spirit of penitence, repentance, to turn back to you. Um, strengthen us, please, in our efforts to do your will, to give ourselves to what you're asking. Um, help all of us to open to you, Holy Spirit. You bring the Father and Christ to us in all that you do. Um, Help us all to listen, um, to be better listeners, all of us. I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, um, we're trying to find you in the world, not in church, outside, in war, in communities, in families. Um, 
we're trying to open our eyes um, in the hopes that our faith will be strengthened if we learn to see how active you are in our world, sometimes in ways we don't see. So strengthen us in those efforts. Um, help all of us to be open to the wisdom of these poets. Um, and maybe even more importantly, to live what we learn. Help us not to leave it in our heads to be smart, um, foolish thing. Not to leave it in our heads to make living in our own lives, what we do in our families, in our marriages, with our children, with all of those around us. Um, and when we do that, help us all to know with no doubt, no doubt, um, we are with you in your kingdom. We are making your kingdom present here um, by what we're doing. Help us not to shy away from that because it sounds so large. That's our faith. Um, strengthen us in our faith. We offer these prayers um, tonight in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, um, Chris, the two poems, one of them is, um, I can't even remember, one of them is called um, No Worse There Is None, I think. Yeah. One, it's the first line. It doesn't have a title. It's called No Worse There Is None. And the other one is called God's Grandeur. If you guys are on link on the other one, you can you can go to that folder and look at the... But I would say don't, um, because I, you know me. I, I, um, poetry should be heard. It should be read. It's a, it's a musical form. I'm always glad for people just to hear it. But you're welcome to go to that if if you want. It's, it's there, so... Um, Okay, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, we've talked about him before, so I won't talk about him again tonight. Remember, he's a 19th century British subject, raised Anglican and converted in the middle of his life during that Tractarian movement, which was such an important period of reform in the Anglican Church in England. Um, when a lot of people got involved in it, they realized that the problem wasn't reform. The problem was in the Protestant church itself, and a number of those people realized that and converted. John Henry Newman was one of them. Gerard Manley Hopkins was another, and he was a poet. So this is his poem called No Worse There Is None. <clears throat> it, it belongs to that dark period. Um, you, it belongs next to Caring Comfort, the poem we read last week. No Worse There Is None. No worse, there is none. Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wi wilder ring. Comforter, when, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddled in a mane, a chief woe, world sorrow, on an age-old anvil, wince and sing. It's like somebody's on an anvil beating him into shape. Woe, world sorrow, on an age-old anvil, wince and sing, then lull, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force, I must be brief. Oh, the mine, mine has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful sheer, 
no man fathom. I love that line. I'm gonna. I don't like doing this, but that to me is one of the most powerful lines in the whole of the lyric tradition. Um, it it describes this enormous capacity of the mind. If we're made in the image of God, there's something in our mind that has an infinite quality. Imagine imagine the effect of that if we're looking at dark things. It's like being on a mountain, you know, 2,000 feet, and looking down at a precipice and feeling terrified that you could fall. The steeps of our mind are so great. You know, they, they're close to infinity. So when, when the joys are great, they leave us in tears. When the dangers are great, we feel pretty intense dangers. So um, I love this line because of all that, it, all that it captures in just a few words. Oh, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may, who never hung there. Nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. We can't be there for long. It's too much for us. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death, does end, and each day dies with sleep. The paradox is in that, you know, to be alive, to find a rest in sleep from the torments of a day. Um... To look at hard things and still take comfort in a, in a sleep arrest, even though when you go to bed you may not be able to sleep. You know? I mean, I think most of us have nights like that. I know I do. God's grandeur. This is a wonderful affirmation of the way in which God is present in the universe no matter what's going on, no matter what we do with nature, no matter how much we trot on it, how much we use industry to beat nature up. You know, God is always there. He's sustaining this world, whatever, with all of the destructive things that we do with it. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. If, you, if you're looking at the poem um, visually, we've talked about little things like this. You'll see the line run on and then stop in the first foot of the next line. That's unheard of, because lines usually go on. He goes on and stops on that word. So its emphasis is tremendous in the, in the metrics of the poem. So let me, sorry, let me read it again just so you hear. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. Because we have shoes on, we can't feel always what we do to nature. And for all this, for all this, Awful stuff we do. Nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe 
bright wings. We're going to do Starlet Night sometime soon, Chris. <laughs> so there's Hopkins, okay? Um, okay, let's let's start. Um, okay. Last week, uh, just a background piece. I want to I want to try to do a very quick review here because I want I want to go back to the work we began on regimes because they're so important. Last week, I I offered the notion that the greatest virtue of the ancient world was justice. Um, those of you who go to church regularly or during the week or even on weekends know that when we do the readings, every first reading from the Old Testament is, is almost always an affirmation of God's justice. Okay? We've talked about this before. If you go to the New Testament, it's almost always about love and mercy. What, what's a little bit upsetting sometimes, I think, certainly for me, um, is that priests don't often bring those two things together. I think the way they should. Um, I'm asking everybody to hold on to something here. I'm going to read a couple of passages from recent um, readings just to try to make the connection between Homer's world <coughs> and the Old Testament. Um, we were made in God's image. For us, that means there's something Trinitarian in every one of us. In the modern Protestant world, we tend to see ourselves as individuals in a private world. If we're being true to our faith, that can't happen because God by nature is Trinitarian. There's one God but three persons. And the nature of those three persons is indwelling. They indwell one with, there's a perfect indwelling. I think, I'm not sure if I gave you this quote. We, I get it in the Dante class when we get to Dante. St. Thomas says, in the Trinity, one person is not less than the other two. And two are not more than the other one. The one person has the whole of the three of them in himself. Now square that mathematically in our world and it won't work out. I hope everybody, because in our world two is greater than one. And one is less than two, right? It's absolutely crucial to get out of that. In the Trinity we have one God. So one person, the Father or the Son or the Spirit, doesn't matter, is not less than the other two. They share their being. They are perfectly indwelling. Now that's a notion I don't even think most Catholics know and should. Um, if we take that seriously, we should carry it into our marriages with our kids, with each other, yeah? That means there's no marriage that doesn't involve an adventure. This is what we're dealing with in the Odyssey, right? It's an adventure. It's a man trying to get home to his wife. No marriage can escape an adventure um, or not involve a risk. Because if to, to indwell means to take somebody else into yourself and make them one with yourself. And sometimes, <clears throat> I'm sure, I'm guessing all of you know this, <clears throat> It's almost impossible to do that without suffering because every one of us has faults in ourselves. So Suzanne has to bear my faults. Oh God, I pray for her constantly. I have to bear hers. Um, um, and if, if we're reading this stuff seriously, we know from Christ, the husband's supposed to love the wife, like Christ in his church, the husband, the wife to 
obey our husband. We can't leave each other where we are in our marriages. We're supposed to help each other become perfect in love. So it's not like when you get married, everything's going to be okay. It's the beginning of an adventure. That's what we're dealing with here, in the, really, in the Odyssey. It's an adventure to get home. What Homer's doing is, sh- is showing the natural obstacles in our nature that we have to overcome to get better. That's an extraordinary gift. Science, modern science can't do that. The modern Protestant world can't do it. The Protestant world thinks we're depraved. The ancient world thought that there was this inherent goodness in man, even if he was flawed, but man could become better. He could become virtuous. Yeah. So last week I, I presented this um, view of God's order, that, he, that he's present in his creation. And um, for us to get better means to come into accord with that nature, that large nature. Okay. One of the words I used to describe that in the Iliad was the logos. It was a Greek notion. That there's this order in the world and an, and an order, a rationality to things. The epic, um, the, as the word means, to give a word, to sing a word. Christ was the word. He, he was the word. He's present. He, 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 he left his stamp on creation, if we could only understand it. That's why so many of the poems I've read, you know, like Hopkins, the... The wind hover or kingfishers catch fire. Everything speaks. In the scientific world, it's been reduced to abstractions, and we don't hear them. But according to a Christian world, world everything, everything speaks. St. Thomas would say, everything is a subject in itself. We tend to objectify things when we look at them with our minds. So every tree, right, is a subject in its own right. He's expressing whatever, you know. I think I've talked about this before, particularly with women, because I think women do this more easily than men. They will talk to plants. You know, there's a... Suzanne loves gardening. She loves to plant. There's no way to watch her do this without feeling... She's far more one with those things than I am, you know, in everything she does. Um, So there's this logos, this order to things. And in the ancient world, there was this perfection to what God did and man could come into conformity when he did it if he did he would be achieving what to the ancient world they would have called justice justice and you know from the work we've been doing that for plato and his soul we're going to come back to this another time but not now um in order to be just to another person we had to make our own souls just we had to properly order our own souls or we wouldn't be able to be completely just to everybody else. Um, I just muted everybody. I forgot to do that. But um, So I just, I just, this is from readings. They're, they don't fit exactly, but they, I'm, I'm trying to, to keep alive some connection to, um, to make more apparent or visible the connections between what we're doing right now in the Old Testament world. So um, in, in Psalm 119, which we, which we had this last weekend, this is what the psalmist says. This was the, between the, book, the reading from the book of King about Solomon 
and the great gift God gave him, if you remember. And 119. And the, the response the responsory was, I God, Lord, I love your commands. I think I I I got teary when I heard that. Because I, I know for myself and I think for most of us, or maybe some of us, I better be careful what I'm saying here. That very often we don't want to obey his commands because we'd rather do what we want to do. And following his commands means we can't do some of the things we want to do. I mean, that's why we have confession, to go to confession. And, but the, the theme, pulling all the parts together, is the psalmist's love of God's command, Yahweh's commands. He says, I have said, O Lord, that my part is to keep your words. There's the word, implicitly. The law of your mouth is to me more precious than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth. Not talking about love, he's talking about law. Although we know the first commandment from Yahweh is love him more than anything. But generally the focus in the Old Testament is law, justice. Let your kindness comfort me according to your promise to your servants. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. For I love your commands more than gold, however fine, for in your precepts I go forward every false way I hate. The most important thing for him is to conform to to be obedient, to do God's will, okay? And that's ex- explained, described in terms of justice and law. Now, I, I, I want to focus on that because the focus of the ancient world in the, in the epics we've been doing is justice. This ordering the soul. Of, and in, in, in the case of Odysseus, it's Odysseus going to be coming into contact with all these people and the pain and suffering that occurs on both parts, on his and the people he meets. Um, He's got to learn to become lawful, ordered, and very often the people who live in disorders suffer when they come into contact because they're out of tune with this sort of cosmic justice, this large order, okay? Um, Here's a reading from a couple weeks ago. This is from the Book of Wisdom, and you know that this is not an uncommon theme in the in the Old Testament, and it runs everywhere through wisdom. There is no God beside you who have the care of all that you need show you have not unjustly condemned, for your might is the source of justice. Your mastery over all things makes you lenient to all. For you show your might when the perfection of your power is, dis, is disbelieved, and in those who know you, you rebuke, you rebuke temerity. I'll just end it. Um, and you taught your people by these deeds that those who are just, are just, must be kind. You give your children good ground for hope that you would permit repentance for their sins. There's an order to the world. Sinning means we're putting ourselves at odds with that order and with God. And in the Old Testament, the word generally used to describe that is just, an, an order a law, a way. God constantly talks about following his way, his commandments, okay? So we're not talking about the laws that are on the law books, right? We're talking about an order to the universe, a way. And that's what, we, um, that's what we're encountering when we go into the world of Homer or Virgil, okay? Um <clears throat> And the point that I wanted to underscore here, this is so crucial, 
if we're made in God's image and Christ came to us to offer us a love, the, the question that I just want to put to everybody, is there anything that Christ did that abrogated or undermined his father's law? Did he do anything to put himself against his father's law? So that love and law are seen as antinomies, opposites, belonging to opposite orders. He's the father's son. They co-inheriting each other in eternity. He went back to the Trinity, took his place there. So we're not in, we're not in a Christian world yet. We're not in a world of love, what, what Christ brought. But the point that I want to make here is those two things should not be seen as antagonistic or contrary. They are one. Christ took on our nature to answer an injustice against God. We disobeyed him with a love that we couldn't bring to anything we did to achieve justice. And he made clear, he said, what, what were his words? I came not to break the law. Like if those, I came to fulfill it every iota. Now we're not in a Christian world and I don't want to go there, but the reason I'm saying this is because particularly with the Protestant scientific world, we tend to put love and law off as opposites. And I, I just think there's, I personally think that's a great loss. I want to do everything I can to help recover the goodness of that, the way it's revealed in these ancient poets, in Homer and the Iliad and now in the Odyssey. Because in the Odyssey, it's about a man trying to get home, um, recover his marriage, to return to his wife and his son. Um, and all that he learns that he has to overcome if he's going to make his marriage what it could be. Okay? So Odysseus is called a man of many ways. What he makes clear is that there's a norm. That man has a nature. There's a norm. And as human beings, we're, 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 our tendency is to give in to extremes on either end, too much or too little. Virtue is the mean. It's a norm. It's, it's an acknowledgement that, that we have a nature and it's possible for us to attain that norm. The modern world has lost any sense of norms. It's lost any sense that we have a nature. You can do whatever you want. You can change your sex, same-sex marriages. You can, I mean, you can have abortions. You can do whatever you want. There's no nature. In the, in the Odyssey, there is, there is a home. Oh God, I can't. There is a home. I can't. I've got to get my fingers in there. <laughs> well, let me just, one of the things I don't like about this is I know if I were up you know, in a class... You'd see my whole body jumping out of itself. So, you know, you know I, it's not showing here, but um, there's there's uh, there's something to which we can return, to which to which we can look to recover. Because a norm is possible. Even if he, if you grow up in if grow up in the ghettos, it's still possible to attain that norm. If if you grew up in a in a let me put the two extremes there. If you grew up in a rich world and are spoiled you can recover that norm. There is a norm there to try to realize. There's a potential for it. Okay? Homer's showing us there's a nature, and Odysseus is struggling to realize it, that virtue. Okay? So he's called the man of many ways. There's a norm to come back to, a home. And I've said before, the home is not four walls. It means a certain ordering of the soul in oneself and in a relationship between a man and a woman. There's a real, it's real. 
The Greeks would call it a telos, an end. A flower has an end. The end of a flower is to become beautiful. The end of us humans is to become virtuous. In the natural order, Christ is going to change that. But listen, Christ will change it. He's not going to undo it. He, he will, there's nothing Christ did that was not a virtue. He did everything that I'm talking about in, in Odysseus, except he brought a divine grace. He fulfilled every one of the natural virtues that we see in Odysseus. Temperance, justice, endurance, um, prudence, wisdom. Those are the natural virtues. He lacked nothing in those. He was perfect in every natural human virtue. We are all asked to become perfect in those virtues and still do something more. But the perfect virtues are, there's a telos, an end. A flower can become beautiful. A, a fruit tree can produce good fruit. A bad tree can produce bad tree. Human beings can become naturally perfect according to the natural order. That's something absolutely lost on the modern mind. He's a man of many ways. Okay, he's called the man of many ways, long-suffering Odysseus. Odysseus's name comes from the Greek um, Odysseumai, Odysseumai, to bring anger, to arouse anger. Think about the similarity between him and Achilles. I've talked about this with Achilles. Remember, anger is the re- rectifying virtue. Um, if Telemachus takes those drugs from Helen, would he be ever able to... Um, to avenge the wrongs against his mother, would the suitors say. Is everybody following? Anger is essential. It's not a bad, it's the mediating virtue, it's the rectifying, it's it's the rectificatory. When somebody um, threatens to take away something or does harm to you, we call in our anger. If somebody were to burst into our home, if we didn't have an anger enough, I mean, I think you all know, I certainly know it myself. if I'm shooting baskets and I'm and I because I try to work out, you know, and I go and I miss five in a row, something in me is going to say, Robert. I'm assuming we all get angry at ourselves, you know, when we're not doing something, and I'm assuming, I hope not unkindly, that um, that we get angry angry with each other occasionally. That our husband does something, our wife does something. Um, we're we're trying to rectify a wrong. Rage is a, wrath, is a sin. Anger is not. Okay? So Odysseus's name means to bring anger or to arouse anger because in him we have an image of a virtue. What happens if you bring a goodness to somebody who doesn't know it? Not all people are going to welcome it. Oh, here, here start, take this. Let's say you have a really good friend who's an alcoholic. And you happen to meet him one night and you know he's drinking and you know the effects and you say, no, you can't have it. You think your friend is going to say, how good you are, I really enjoy you and grateful to have a friend like you who is so kind. I mean, this guy's got a serious addiction. He's going to love what you do? You're all following, yeah. So his name is not insignificant. It's interesting to see that similarity or there's this link between Achilles and Odysseus in that respect. Except remember the end's different. Achilles is a man of war. He belongs in a war. Odysseus is a man trying to get back to a family. He's got to learn to do things to take his place in a family that Achilles never has to deal with. 
Um, so he represents a new kind of hero achieving the natural virtues. Temperance, fortitude, prudence, justice. It's an attempt to realize the mean. Um, if, if you want a modern example, remember Portia. You all remember her, yeah? When we did Merchant of Venice, when, the, when we shifted to uh, Belmont, Portia and Mirsa, was that her maid servant's name? God, my mind. Portia was complaining. I'm sorry, Mary's not here. She was complaining because she said, it's so hard to live in the mean. What does she do when she gets to Venice to straighten out that problem? She has to reconcile two opposing opposites. Um, Shylock's old law, the Christian law of the men. And you remember the Christian wanted Antonio to be let off? That they wanted to forgive him? And Shylock wanted his bond. If Shylock gets his bond, Antonio dies. If the Christians get their way and Antonio's let off, nobody, nobody will risk anymore because they undermine the law. She's got to find a way of reconciling those two opposites. We've gone through that, right? You all remember? what She was an image, a perfect image of a woman living a law out of love for her husband, going into a public arena to try to do something nobody in Venice could. And she was only capable of doing it because she was raised to be virtuous. Um, so now let me stop. I want to turn to the regimes. Those are just uh, just sort of background review matters. Um, we've talked about marriage and some of the obstacles in the modern world. Science cannot get to marriage. The Protestant world in some ways undermines it. If we're all depraved, we bring something negative. I mean, obviously the grace of God will help us out, but but, the, but so often, certainly the fundamentalist mind circumvents nature. It goes around it. What we're finding in Homer is um, things that we can learn about our nature that can help us according to what we've been given by nature. Grace comes later. There's already a hint of grace in Homer because the gods are at work, but it's not the grace that we know from Christ. But let me stop. Any, any questions? You guys feel free to unmute yourselves and jump in. Is that too much? Is too? I mean, I, some of this I'm just going over, but I, I know there's a lot there. But um, I can't believe you guys don't have questions. No, Connie must be doing something wrong here. Chris, I I do not believe you don't have a question. I do not not for a second. And by the way, I don't want to press you. I'm having fun with you because, well, I, because I know I know you've done all this stuff too. But I also know that you teach this stuff, and I I know you turn it over a lot. No, there's just a yeah, it is a lot. So I'm just trying to I guess process it, and that's why I don't have a question. Okay, <laughs> okay. I here's a confession again for you guys. When I started this stuff. You, you, I, I, maybe you guys are used to it. <laughs> maybe that's why the numbers are shrinking in this class. I don't know. When I started at um, St. Francis and had the first class, because we were starting the Iliad, and I wanted to go to, back to the Old Testament and show, I think I showed you the, with the Old Testament timeline and the epic timeline how, how amazing they match up. The founding, th th that's the theme of the epic, to re-found a city. 
and the founding with Abraham and the you know the twelve tribes and it's just it, to me it's just stunning. But anyway, we finished the class and I said, "Are there any cl- um, questions?" And the guy who was the head of adult catechesis, who's a very 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 articulate, very educated guy, his comment was, "I came for a glass of water and I feel like I've been hooked up to a fire hydrant." <laughs> It's, it's one of my great failings I've never overcome as a teacher. So sorry for you guys if, if I'm overloading here. I, I wish I could do it differently. I can't. So I try. I keep trying. But Okay, you guys, no questions? Maria, you don't have a question? No. I know you do. I can see it in your smile. Um, Okay, I'm going to put this on the screen for a minute and just ask you guys to look at it for a second. It's, um, it's included in the handouts I gave, you know, for Seton on the blog site. Just to recall what we did last week, so I'm going to put this on just for a second, okay? You remember when the Odyssey opened that we were at home with Telemachus and Penelope and their home is in chaos. You've got a hundred men who are laying siege to this home, destroying it virtually. Telemachus is a young boy who's grown up without a father, and but he's reaching that point of manhood where he feels like he has to take a stand. He actually does with his mother. His Penelope asks the singer to stop singing a song about the wars because she gets too moved. And Telemachus, I think it's a sign that he's learning to grow up because he says to his mother, no, let the singer sing. He's not abrupt, he's not rude, but he says no. It's like he's just beginning to step into manhood. But the home's in chaos, and you remember the gods come, Athena comes to help and, and suggest that he set out in search for his father, and he goes to Pylos in Sparta. Um, now hold on to those, I'm going to call those three regimes, Ithaca, Pylos, and Sparta, the real regimes. And you know that when, 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 we, when the focus shifts to Odysseus in the story, we learn that he's been in Calypso's island for eight years and he's set free and he goes and he ends up on the island of the Phaeacians in Scaria. And it's there that we get the stories told, all the, the adventures we're going to continue going through tonight. And we learn in that sequence that Scaria and um, the Phaeacians and the Cyclops were side by side, next to each other. And the Phaeacians left because the Cyclops were so brutal that they had to move away. But those two regimes are the prototypes. I can't say this strong enough. They're the archetypes, they're the prototypes of every conceivable possible regime if, if you look at a whole range, okay, oops, I don't, we don't need this, so. Is everybody clear on that? So we've got the three regimes in real time, but we also have these, all these other regimes, these mythic regimes that Odysseus is going to encounter, but we learned that two of them are prototypes. And I just think it's absolutely crucial to see that. And I gave, I, I gave us a suggestion that you read G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man. I don't know if you guys have read it. 
to me, it's one of the most powerful books that, that I've ever read that puts to shame the modern scientific theory. It's a theory. It's not, it's not proven, but most scientists believe it. The theory that um, time is progressive, that civilization has grown progressively from more primitive barbaric stages. Implied in that is a theory of evolution. I think that's why it's so powerful to the scientific mind, because it seems to line up with the theory of evolution, that things evolve. And to the scientific mind, they're always in the direction of something positive. Now, I want you to seriously think about it because these are, these are modern scientists from the 19th century forward, largely. Homer wrote this 800, and he's looking back to 1200 BC. And what he's saying is, no, that civilization is not on a path of progress, that this barbaric state and this idealistic state grow up side by side. If you looked at anything going on in America today, you'd say, absolutely true. There are cities in ruin in America. There are cities in ruin in Siberia, and you know, I mean, you don't, where you can go. There are cities living in primitive states in Africa or um, in some places in China. What you see when you look at the world in truth is um, areas of barbarism, savagery, and something approaching a telos, an end, a perfection. And they grow up together side by side. And I suggested last time that if you think about this scientific theory that most people accept as true today, if you set it next to the biblical account, it wouldn't stand. Particularly, and if you read Chesterton's account in Everlasting Man, you'd, you'd see how foolish it is. Remember this. Our, the biblical understanding of man is that man, was in, man and woman were in the garden together. They loved God. A fault took place, and they left the garden. When they left the garden, what they brought with them was a propensity to evil, a weakness to give in to evil, and goodness. They existed side by side. Cain killed his brother. Enoch was the builder of the first city. He's a son of Cain. We've talked about this. The Enoch is the founder of the first city. Builds the city. It's man's first attempt to live self-sufficiently without God. So the city comes into existence in the biblical terms as an effort to live on his own, as if he didn't need God. And we've talked about the importance of that the city is one of the dominating images of Western civilization because it's an image of all that man can do that's great. It's paradoxical. Man does the twin towers. It's, it's, I mean, it, if you start thinking about the implications of what happened with the twin towers, you'll see a lot more than most people see. It's an extraordinary thing. In one sense, it's also an expression of our hubris. Um, and I, want, I don't want to forget this. Kay, are you there? And De Kay. Oh, God, did we lose you? No, David and Kay, are you there? I hope you can hear me. We muted ourselves. Okay. I just wanted to say, because <laughs> I've been enjoying it all week, that I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I think most of you are here to hear what one of the last things that Kay said when we were getting off and dealing with these things, when you're talking about the Fiacans, why that mountain was heaped on the ship. Remember when the Fiacans took Odysseus home? Because the, the Fiac, they are the first image of a technological society. The word technolo technology comes from the Greek word techne. It means to use a technical, ra a rational knowledge to master something. 
And you know from our readings that the Falcons are good at that. Their culture is full of art and beauty and technical accomplishments, and their ships are an epitome of that power. Because remember, they've just probably six, eight times in that on the section on them, they describe themselves as having ships that cross the sea following the thoughts of men. They don't need oars. And they're not afraid of anything. So it's, it's, it's an image in 800 BC of what today we would call the computer age. To think something and it will happen. But we saw the danger of it because if you ever reach a point where you think you master nature, you're giving into a hubris because the God, nature, is where the gods are. So to presume that you can master nature is to presume that you have a power over the gods. That's why Poseidon dumps that mountain on them. You remember? Anyway, Kay, I just wanted to tell you, I've enjoyed that your comment <laughs> all week long. If, if, if you guys don't remember when we ended, I, we were talking about where are the Phaeacians today, where we can find them, and different people had different answers, and Kay said, how'd she put it? She said um, that the, the mountain is, a, is the big fat um, coronavirus virus that God dumped on America. <laughs> I thought, I thought <laughs> that's so true. I mean, we've become so proud as a, you know, we're the leaders of the world today, and it's been humbling for all of us, I think. Um, Anyway, we talked about those three real regimes and then the two prototypes, the Phaeacians and the Cyclops. The Cyclops are brutal. The Phaeacians are a little bit like a suburbia world. Remember, they don't know bows and arrows, they don't know war, um, and they don't know suffering. They want to create a world that's free of suffering. That's the modern utopian American ideal. To escape the city, get away from crime, to get away from suffering. Um, but the question is, if we do, remember, Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. If we do, do we weaken ourselves? You know, do, do, are, do, we, do we lack something that we need to deal with the evils in the world? So one of the things I think Homer's showing us in the contrast between those two worlds, so... Okay, what I'd like to do now is turn to the, the voyages. Um, from here on out, almost all the adventures are going to deal with feminine archetypes. Remember I told you that the Iliad, in one sense, was a great critique of the male ego, the, the way in which men are given to power. It seems to me what happens here through the greater part of the Odyssey is that Homer's going to um, open up um, the difficulties that women um, present to men and that they have in themselves. And let me go back to the, the Garden of Eden thing for a minute. I know this is outside the range, but, but I think it'll help. You remember that in the, in the Garden, Adam and Eve loved God more than everything. I mean, he, he was first. There was no disorder. He was their creator. They loved him. They were whole in themselves, one with each other in their love. But they disobeyed and lost it. Um, the, um, I'm going to make a proposition. If anybody disagrees, please step in. But, but my own sense of what happened then is that what happened then is that when when they 
when they turned from God, the love that was directed towards God and a wholeness got broken. The Protestant believes it made man depraved. I don't believe that, but but it wound that's the Catholic belief that it wounded us and and what happened was that that love that directed was towards God got turned towards the self so that men would treat women as objects and women would treat men as objects and they're different men tend to be physically stronger but the, I'm speaking biologically women biologically have the capacity to give birth so there's two different forms of the same human nature we're both humans but we're different but once that love gets turned inward um, men are inclined to use women as objects and women are inclined to use men as objects given their different natures okay so I think what Homer's showing us is, are some of the difficulties um, that women present in themselves and to or Odysseus trying to get home okay so what I'd like to do now is look at the um, at the adventures, pick up where we left off. Um, I want to go over some of them briefly, but I want to try to put them together. And I'm I'm going to um, I'm going to treat a couple of them separately, and then I'm going to treat a number as a group. Um, if you've got questions, jump in. But when I finish with that group, then I'm going to ask a general question: What are we learning about women if we look at all the instances, the examples in that group? Okay. Um, somebody just joined us. Marilyn, can you hear? Can you hear me? If if um, if you if if you if I'm not a I, I, I'm not very clear on what we're supposed to do, but if you want to speak, there's a mute button in front of you. It's one of the options. All you have to do is unmute it, and you can speak or ask questions or do what you want. I put I've muted everybody because it, it's. It's supposed to improve the sound, but I'm also asking anybody at any time when they have questions to jump in. So feel feel free, please, to come in. But I would like to hear from you anyway, if it's because I. Can you hear me? I don't know. Let me stop for a second. Um, any questions on that opening on regimes, the three? Let me let me let me try to elaborate for a moment on on one of the things because they, it goes right to the heart of marriage. Give this some serious thought. Telemachus goes to Pylos, Sparta. We've talked about this. When he goes to P Pylos, Nestor does, we, when we read that episode, we don't hear his wife at all. All we hear is Nestor recounting his heroic deeds. I'm going to call that the false heroic. When he goes to um, Sparta, he will, um, we, he will meet with uh, Menelaus, and you remember... Um, um, Helen will come down and offer drugs. I don't know if I don't know how to deal with any of this. I don't know why enter enter full screen again. I'm not sure. Um, are are you all seen? I don't know what all this stuff is. Is this is this Marilyn? Are you? I have no idea what's happening right now. Um, request control. I have no idea. Um, I'm not sure. Um, if you can all just try to. Um, why are we getting all this stuff? 
I don't know, something's happening here. I, I don't know how to straighten it out. Um, keep in mind this. Um, Telemachus goes to Nestor's place and what we experience is this war hero who spends all of his time talking about the past. Yeah? We don't hear his wife at all. When he goes to Sparta, Menelaus describes some of the adventures he had, particularly in getting home, some of the struggles he had to go through. Um, and then Helen comes out and offers drugs. Marilyn, I don't know what this is. I don't know what Marilyn sharing her screen right now. And so there's a little box with an X that she needs to click in order to not share her screen anymore. Marilyn, did you hear that? Can you click your X? Nope, not that one. There's one at the center bottom of your screen. There you go. Stop sharing. Awesome. Is that it? Yeah, so she... Uh, there, there's a little microphone, Marilyn, uh, that you can... There, there's a little cross through it. You can uh, click on that and it unmutes you. But uh, I'm going to mute myself. Don't say um, is everybody following me? Let me extend this a little bit farther because I hope I can flesh this out because to me it's absolutely crucial. I'm going to call the poetry, the singing, that represents that first home, um, the, the, the pathos of a false heroism. If you've got my notes, you'll know that. It's the pathos, the emotional appeal of a false heroism. Is everybody under, can everybody hear me? Or are we back in? Okay. So, for example, if you watch Sylvester Stallone's movies, or you know that's where you watch some guy use a machine gun and you know kill fifty people, I'm gonna. I, I don't. That to me, the the Iliad is a great work, but I'm gonna use the that term, the the pathos of the false heroic, to describe everything in the Iliad up to Achilles's turn. When that turn happens. A, a, the, that old flawed sense of honor is replaced by a new sense of honor that involves the gods. And the cost of it, you, we've already gone through, the cost of it is Achilles has to admit his fault, he said I let everybody down, and he has to give up his life. And it's at that moment that suddenly he can do things he'd never been able to do before. So in Nestor we've got an image of what I'm calling the poetry, the pathos of the false heroic. The male ego. Okay, and I'm not saying men shouldn't fight. I think we. I hope I've been through that because I believe they should, but not that way. Okay, when he gets to Sparta, I'm going to call that the the pathos of an enabling husband, because the issue here is the the role of the husband in the household, because what he's doing is enabling his wife. She wants to give drugs. She's inclined to self pity. It's like somebody on alcohol. So both of those homes are in a state of arrest. One of them I'm calling the pathos of the false hero. The other is the pathos of an enabling um, where a husband just becomes passive in, in relationship to his own, his wife's emotional, you know, self-pity. And now to help, remember, um, Nestor's wife has no voice. She doesn't even exist. And Helen's got more of a voice, but it's, it's still, she's locked in the past. She won't come out of that past. So both of them are trapped in the past. 
That's why I'm calling them the poetry of a pathos. So when you watch a movie with those two things happening, one of them is like a soap opera, the other is like this heroic thing where men you know, tear apart a, you know. Is everybody following me? I know I'm going a little bit fast here, but I'm, I'm trusting you all know what I'm talking about. Telemachus is trying to step out of that because Ithaca is trapped in that same path, that past, but he's trying to find some way to answer it. And Odysseus is struggling to get home will finally bring him to a point where he can answer it. So what we're going to see in the homecoming is those disorders in Ithaca and Sparta put to rest. And the cost of it is great because it's going to be, you know, it's going to be costly. Is everybody understanding? Any questions on that? How do I get rid of this bar, Chris? It's got, I don't know. Anyway, does there, anybody have any questions on that? You are following what I'm saying? So now we're back on, is everybody okay? We've got the, the, the three homes in real time and we've got the mythic art, archetypes. Now we're going to look at more of the archetypes that deal specifically with feminine, feminine figures and what the woman, the, the, the challenges and the um, dangers that women present to Odysseus on his struggles to get home. Okay. No questions? Okay. Um, we've already looked at the Caconians. We looked at the Lotus Eaters. Remember the Caconians um, um, killed men um, and destroy a number of ships. There's Odysseus still in a warlike state. He's, he's still carrying the warrior with him. As he, and I can't imagine any soldier leaving a battlefield for 10 years and not carrying that forward. So um, we looked at the Lotus Eaters, the Cyclops. Let me start with the, um, the Aeolians. Can you turn to page 152? I'm going to try to do this quickly so I can get to my questions, but... <clears throat> Page 152, book 10, very opening. We came next to the Aeolian island where Aeolus lived, um, Hippotas' son, beloved by the immortal gods on a floating island, go down. He had 12 children born to him, six of them daughters, six sons in the pride of their youth. So he bestowed his daughters on his sons to be their consorts. So the same sons and daughters married, okay, from the same parent. Now, um, they promised to help Odysseus get home on page 153. And you remember um, um, Aeolus gives him the bag of winds. Now think about that, bag of winds, allegorically, what the meaning of that is. Remember that, that they get right offshore of Ithaca. Odysseus is home, finally. So not a long time has passed, he's home. But he falls asleep, interestingly, and his men thinks they think the bag is full of gold, and they open it and let out the winds, and it blows them off course, and they're not going to get home for another nine and a half years. But he goes back to Aeolus on page 154 and asks for help um, a few lines down. So they spoke, and I um, thought sorrow at my heart. I thought 
uh, and and I, though sorry at heart, answered, my wretched companions brought me to ruin, helped by the pitiless sleep. Then make it right, dear um, dear friends, for you have the power. So I spoke to them, and then they respond, Oh, lead. now remember, Odysseus is called one of the greatest heroes in the war. Because we, we talked about virtue a minute ago, and the way people respond to it. He's called one of the greatest men of the war. He's admired by most people. O least of living creatures out of this island, hurry. I have no right to see on I have no right to see on his way, none to give passage to any man whom the blessed gods hate with such bitterness. Out. This arrival means you are hateful to the immortals. So first of all, is Odysseus hateful to the immortals? No. No, Athena goes in the very beginning and says, what are you doing? Get this man home. He's one of the most just men in the world. The one, the one person who's angry with him is Poseidon. But the gods admire him. Hermes is always helping him. Um, Athena appeals to Zeus. Athena is his mentor. She looks out for him. But here these people say he's hateful. Now just very quickly, I don't want to spend too much time, but um, who, what do we make of the, the Aeolians? Who are they? Can we see them today? And what does it say about them that they say least of men and um, hateful to the gods? Let me go back for a minute to try to clarify this too. Here's what Aristotle says in Nicomath Keen Ethic. He says the virtues of mean that it's, it, each one of us has a different disposition. Each one of us. Some of us are inclined to anger, some of us are inclined to meekness or avoiding things or being scrooges in money. You know, money, I mean, every one of us has different weaknesses. For Aristotle, each one of us has got to learn to recognize our inclination and go the opposite way. So if we're not very courteous because we're too self-centered, what do we do to become courteous? It's like a tree. If we're too far this way, we have to go this way to answer it. So if courtesy is not an easy thing, the most important thing is for us to practice courtesy. Now let me be really clear here. Let's say we're dealing with spending money and the two extremes are um, squandering, right? You're too inclined to waste money or um, um, what he calls um, niggardliness. Um, um, that's his word. What's, what's another word for tight-fisted? You know, it's just not spending so two extremes. So let's say you're here um, and spending too much. Is the answer to go here equidistant from the center to answer it? And you're shaking your head. Why? Uh, it's not necessarily. So it's a mean, not a median. But a mean, yeah, right. But to come back to the center is, and you were shaking. Sorry, shake. Did you have something? Me? No, Anne was, I think we've lost her. If you're a tree, let's say you're a tree, and you're bent this far, to bring that tree straight, is it enough to go here? Connie, why not? Well, no, because if you want the tree to be straight, you've got to go the whole way. Because the inclination, if you're here, the tree's here, it isn't going to be enough to go here because it won't balance. Because the inclination is here. To answer it, it means you've got to go here in order to bring that tree here. Because the whole inclination is 
Every, everybody following? So whatever, whatever our extreme, whatever inclination we have to answer it, to become virtuous, means we have to go way the other way to bring us to the, to the mean. Okay? Now let me give another example to make this clear, because I'm really dealing with this question of why they look down on him. The Aeolians said, least of men and hateful to the gods. What, what does that say about them? Aristotle would have said this, take courage, because courage is a good example. Courage is the mean. Portia was a woman of great courage to do what she did, okay? The extreme at one side for courage is um, rashness. What's the other extreme? With courage means the virtue you call on in dealing with dangers when your life is at risk. So it's, it's a paradoxical virtue. To get out of danger, you have, to, you have to put yourself at risk in order to save yourself. So the mean is courage. The one extreme is rashness, being rash. And the other is what? Cowardice, right? Cowardly run away. Karen, what? I, you have to put your speaker on. Is everybody following? Go ahead, Karen, go ahead. That's, I was just saying that, but I didn't ever put on your speaker. So that's why I threw my hands up. <laughs> <laughs> we, have to learn sign, we have to learn sign language with each other. Is everybody following? So we have to, each individual has to learn to see himself as he is, what his inclinations are, and answer them to become virtuous, to become good. Here's the interesting thing. Aristotle said, only the virtuous man knows virtue. So let me put it this way. Let's say you're a rash man and you're in the presence of a courageous man. How is that rash man going to look at the truly virtuous, courageous man? He's going to look at him as a coward, right? If you look at um, the coward looking at a courageous man, how is he going to look at the courageous man? It's being rash. Are you all following? That is, no, unless you're unless you're virtuous, you won't be able to see what real virtue is. It's only when you learn to get there that you can see the subtleties of the differences. Is that clear? The, the, the rash man is going to look at the courageous man as a coward because he's not doing what he's doing. He thinks he's... Watch men go into battle. We saw that all the time. When Patroclus went into war, he was not being courageous. He was being rash. We saw rash men in that war. We saw cowards. <clears throat> Achilles had to learn to do something to become a better man. Is everybody following? That's, I'm trying to give an example to make it clear that only the really virtuous Christ, only the really virtuous man will be able to see what virtue is and know the differences. The closer you get, it's like the closer you get there, the more your eyes are opened. Because so long as you're given to an extreme, there will be things you won't be able to see. Put it this way, would you call the Cyclops brave? No. Do you think they could recognize virtue when they saw it? <laughs> Absolutely not. So we'll go back to my question. What do we learn about the Aeolians? 
They give him this bag of wind to help him get home. When he comes home, he asks for their help, and they say, no way, you're the least of people, um, and you're hated by the gods. They don't see him. What do we, where are they? Who are they? Remember they started, it, the description started that the, the father had six sons and six daughters and they married, it was an intermarriage, and there's, and then we follow what happens. Any thoughts on who they are? Take a stab. So they have limited experience with people on the outside. They all stick to themselves. So that way, so they don't really understand adversity or, you know, that something odd happened to Odysseus. It's just they helped him. He didn't, uh, it didn't work. So he must be unlucky or hated by the gods. And they just, they don't have enough experience with other people to understand that things could happen. Yeah, 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 I think you're right on. The, the, the one thing that I want to add is it seems to me that there's an inbred incestuous purity. And we can't over... I, I actually know a family like that, that they're so protective, so inbred. There's an intermarriage going on here. It's like they're trying to protect the purity of their bloodline, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, that I mean, and then your description I thought was perfect. That it, it 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 gives them a certain way of looking at the world in terms of a purity, and anything outside of that to them is impure, least hated, and they don't. So they 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 can't perceive the truth of things anyway. I mean, Odysseus is a good man. Um, let's look at the Lestrigones. I've got to get. Um, sorry, this, cut back to my, um, on page 154, on page 155, um, he comes to the Strigonese people, um, 155, almost halfway down, but when they entered the glorious house, they found there a woman as big as a mountain as big as a mountain, as big as a mountain peak, and the sight of her filled them with horror. At once she summoned famous Antiphates, her husband, from their assembly, so immediately when she sees them, she gets her husband, he devised dismal death against them. He snatched up one of my companions and prepared him for dinner, but the other two darted away and flight he got back. You know. um, what happens then is um, a battle takes place, and the Lysrini's men are so powerful that they pick up boulders and they throw them at the ships and destroy all the ships at one. So the, whatever this is, the consequences are horrendous. Okay? He loses all of his ships but one. From this point on, it'll be just Odyssey and his ships. Who is the Strigonese queen? Where do we find her? What does anybody make of her? We're getting on touchy character here. I mean, touchy ground. Well, I think because of the description of her being as large as a mountain, she's overwhelming. She's an overwhelming personality. Wow, wow, and, wow. you know, she immediately tells her husband to get rid of this guy, and he does her bidding. So it's one of those women that just seem to be able to... Uh, 
overbearing, make men do what they want because because they're larger than life. Boy, I'm going to put you in my seat and you can do the rest of the class. <laughs> Boy, no, you are good. I mean, anybody else? Anybody have anything to add to that? Can you find, you know, when I was younger, I, you, you guys are all too young. I, I outage all of you, I think. Um, when I was younger, I remember hearing a story about a woman named Zaza Gabor. I shouldn't probably use names, but. And when I first started reading the Odyssey, the first thing that came, I remember descriptions of her when she'd get pulled over by cops or something. She'd just rip into the cops. And I, you can imagine some of these Hollywood actresses domestically at their home, you know, surrounded by people. And I mean, your, your description was just perfect. But um, where would you find, can anybody give examples today where you might find the Lestrigonese queen? A woman using male power to serve herself, and I just thought your description was she's, you know, over, but using male power. I was. Go ahead, go ahead Chris, yeah. This isn't a modern day example, but in scripture, Herodotus is the uh, wife of Herod who kills John the Baptist. Yeah. 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 Anybody find modern examples? Karen, you got that big smile on your face again. As you, what do you got? Hillary Clinton. Hmm? Hillary Clinton. I kind of went to Hillary Clinton. Well, my wife was just saying that's really funny. My wife was in the background going Hillary Clinton, and you just said that. Do, do the two of you have something going here? Sometimes I think about. Some of the, you know, I mean, I can't, I, when I, I'm sure you, I, I'm a, I don't know where you guys are in this, and I don't want to get into the politics right now, but I, in all of my time studying and, you know, in American literature and American history, because I have a, a decent grasp, I'm not a historian, but to teach the American works that I do, I've had to get to know, and I love our founding documents, I just think they're extraordinary. Um, um, so I'm, I've never seen a violent period like this in our history, ever. I, I think we're approaching a revolution. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I'm, I'm not. I, 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 our, our country is so divided on principles, and I don't, see, I don't see a ground that will allow us to reconcile. The, the, the differences are so radical. So what we're facing today is, is unlike anything. I, I think we're... We're facing some kind of war. Something has got to happen. And, and the degree of violence that's going on today, I've never seen anything like I. One of the interesting things that occurred to me in this sense is you've got all these um, women um, mayors and attorney generals who are overturning laws and getting either the power of protesters or the police or somebody to do something that's adding to the unrest and in some ways even encouraging violence. Um, and it's not just women, but I'm, uh, men are doing the same thing. But right now, in terms of looking at the, the Strigonese women, and I thought your description was right on, that there are some men whose presence can be overwhelming. There are some women whose presence is just, you, you know that you're in the presence of somebody who can't get outside of herself. And in this instance, we're, we're aware of a woman who's using male power 
to achieve her ends. Um, take a look at. I, I don't want to. I'm going to pass on Cersei because I want to. I'm because I'm, we're we're close to time, and I want to leave. I want to leave a few minutes and not press at the end. So we're going to come back to the adventures next week and and finish them up and get to the homecoming. But let me let me try to just pick up a couple of things briefly here. You know that when we get to Cersei, it's on page 155 and on, Cersei's in a cave. She's on a loom. She's doing what uh, Calypso does. She's weaving. And she's singing. Um, Odysseus sends some men there with one of his leaders, and he stays back and then watches his men approach Cersei, and she comes out, and she turns them all into pigs. And when the men approach, um, the scene is described in terms of wolves and lions approaching the men and fawning. So they're not presenting threats, lions or wolves. They're fawning. She turns the men into pigs, swine. The man goes back to Odysseus and says, flee. Don't go there. I mean, he's so overwhelmed, so frightened by what he saw. Odysseus has to see it. He's on his way. Hermes, Argofontes, the, the uh, stealth gun, approaches him and and gives him do you remember what this is crucial um, page 160 Odysseus is on his way to meet her and Hermes says he picked something out of the ground he explained the nature of it to me it was black at the root but with a milky flower the gods call it Molly it's hard for mortal men to dig up, but the gods have power to do all things. He has this, he, Hermes gives him this molly. When he comes to Circe, she tries to do what she does with most men and fails, and she realizes that a prophecy she was given has come true. She was told that Odysseus would come. The, work, the potion doesn't work on him. He and the men stay for a year. They go get the rest of the men, they bathe them, and it describes Odysseus. Um, so this is 161. I spoke, she at once swore me the oath, because she swore not to do him any harm. But after she'd sworn me the oath and made an end of it, I mounted the sur surpassingly beautiful bed of Circe. Now, I, I wanted to get a couple more behind us, but we're not going to get them. But I, wanted, I want to do something right now to try to help here. Um... You know that Calypso's, Odysseus is on Calypso's island for eight years. And he's here on Circe's island for one. So of the nine and a half years that he's away, almost ten, he's under the power of these two goddesses, both feminine figures. Calypso, Circe. Circe for a year, Calypso for eight, roughly. And you know that Calypso's island, we went through this, is described as being the navel of the waters, the umbilical cord. And she offers him immortality. And shortly after he comes there, um, you, you remember um, um, when the men eat the cattle of Helios, they're all destroyed. Um, and um, he goes off at sea and he, and he ends up at Calypso's Island and he's there and he'll have to take a raft from there to scare the Phaeacians. That's where he'll take, um, he'll tell his tales and they will take him home. So the tales we get from Scaria, but this is before. He's been at Calypso's Island for eight years. Okay, so 
when, when he's telling the story to the Falcons, he goes back to the beginning um, and he takes us forward. Okay, He was at Calypso's Island for eight. During his journeys, he's with Cersei for one. Now my question is, who are these feminine figures? Who did, what do they represent? Um, why is their power so great? And, and it's interesting, they're not as overtly uh, physically violent as the Lestrigany Queen or the, you know, any of the others. They don't do any physical violence. It's not physical abuse that's an issue here, but their power is extraordinary. So what do they reveal about the feminine psyche? What has Odysseus got to learn here that's so important for his getting home? Is that clear, the question? Where'd you go, Doc? I'm right here. What are you doing? Oh, would you? <laughs> it's funny. I'm watching you in the background and thinking, I think she's dusting. <laughs> what are you? Would you get back in class? I want to hear you. I genuinely do. I keep asking my wife to sit next to me because I, I mean, I genuinely do miss our other arrangement and I miss her not being physically present to you guys. But she won't do it. I, I may I may have to use force next week. See how that goes. <laughs> she she's giving me hard looks right now. <laughs> Come on, you guys. Who are these women figures? What has Odysseus okay. got to learn? Come okay, on. I'll, I'll I'll talk about these women. So um, these women are. Beautiful. You haven't missed tonight. You are you are. I want to take you to a gambling casino some night. <laughs> <laughs> um, these women are beautiful and sexy, and they use their whatever they need to get uh, what they need from men. So they use men um, to for their own benefit. So whether it's sex, whether it's um, distinguish them. I, everything you're saying is right on. What's the difference between you're right on? I just I want I want you to. Distinguish them. What's the difference between them? One's got him for eight years and one for a year. What's the difference? Well, I think um, Cersei has more of a... Um, I, I can't remember why she turns the men into pigs, but she... I, I think Calypso wants him more like she's going to trap him like a woman who gets pregnant. You know, she's going to trap him. Calypso wanted him to be there for companionship and, and sex and all that stuff. But Circe had more, um, she, she just wanted these men around. I mean, I, I, like I said, I can't remember why she turned them into pigs, but she, she was in control and it was just kind of fun for her, I think, to be able to do this to the men. Whereas Calypso had more of a companionship need. By, by the way, I'm, once again, you're right. I just write on. I, I don't want to leave this out in anybody's thinking um, because we're looking at subtle things. You know, we're talking about virtue and extremes and the way people respond. Don't forget that she had a prophecy that Odysseus would come. The, the, the Cyclops did. The Phaeacians did. Circe did. And when he, um, when he leaves, he comes back to Circe. And she's prophetic. She tells him 
the adventures he's going to meet and what he's got to do. So whatever your thinking is about either of those women, don't, don't forget to include that in your thinking about her. Anybody else on the two women? Maria, do you have any thoughts? This is asking for some real truth-telling on the part of women here, I think. Connie, what do you got? <laughs> Come on, I know, I, I know better. I don't say nothing. I know better. I know better. Anne, anybody? I, I think that Cersei is also comfort, distraction, uh, kind of holding him back from being uh, fully himself. <laughs> anybody else? Okay, maybe... Cersei. Boy, um, you are really. God bless your soul. I mean, you. When? When's the? La, when's the last time you looked at the pages? I mean, you're right on time. Did you finish? I read this book twice. Oh wow. While we were waiting. God. To get back to class, so. But I. Okay. So. Okay. So I've known women who have been beautiful and just been able to make men do whatever they want them to do. God. But. They appreciate that man who doesn't allow that to happen. You know, they have respect for that man, even though they wouldn't ha be where they're at if they weren't able to, um, to, to make men do what they want. But they appreciate when a man doesn't. And Cersei knew that there was going to be somebody who was going to come along who maybe was going to need her. And so, um, th with the prophecy, so she she knew that he was going to be coming along, so she could just use men whenever she wanted to. But when this certain guy came along, he was going to be special. Yeah. And that and that's why she, I mean, she wished she could have manipulated him as well, but she couldn't. So that's why uh, she helped him along. I've got, yeah, I've got, I've myself got questions about that. It's, let me just remind you of a couple things. We're getting close to finishing. I, I really don't want to press this tonight. I, I wanted to get through more of these, but I'm glad with what we're doing. And I'd like to leave early tonight. I, I owe you guys time anyway. But, um, a couple of things. Don't forget that we're dealing with goddesses, not humans, because so often when I hear people read about this, and, and women get really, a little bit touchy because they think Odysseus is being unfaithful to P Penelope. You know, this is not a woman. This is an archetype. She's an image. Let me just offer any, any other thoughts before I offer a couple of thoughts of my own. Both of them are archetypes. They're, ar they're, they're images of something in woman. And I think, I think, um, Melody, you're right. They're um, exactly the way you've described them. But I, I don't want you to forget that they're archetypes. So um, it seems to me each one of them represents something inherent in woman, God-given. That woman has a beauty as one of the sexes that men don't. You don't typically say a man's, I mean, sometimes you do, but generally you say a man's handsome or good-looking. Women are beautiful. There's a beauty to women. If you look at the feminine figure, in, at least in my mind, if you look, and I'm a man, maybe I shouldn't be. 
if you look at the feminine figure, it, I mean, there's such a beauty to the female body. And, and I, 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 I don't think I'm exaggerating. The power that that has over a man, I just think is inestimable. I'm not kidding. 90% of the advertisements on television today, you can be advertising a car. You can be advertising a home. Show me the figures that are men sell. You know, it's going to be a woman standing next to a car, jewelry. 90% of the advertisements in America are, are appealing subliminally to the beauty of women. They're, they're, they're using it because the power is so great. When I, when I hear women wanting political power, I kind of laugh. I mean, I'm, like, I'm not kidding. Because the power that women have over men already is... I think they lose power when they go into politics myself. I'm not kidding. I'm, not, I'm being honest with you guys. Women have a power over men. The desire that they awaken in men is extraordinary. They're archetypes. There's something in every woman that... Here, I'm going to put it more strongly. There's something in every woman that reveals the beauty of God. Christ is called the image of his Father. He's the form. He's the principle of all form. Women share that beauty as creatures. And the, that power alone is extraordinary. The Let me finish this, and I'd love to hear your response, whatever you guys, because feel free to disagree on any of this. But The fundamental difference between them is that Circe's an image of that power in every woman insofar as it awakens a sexual desire in man. Because the issue, if you read the passage closely, the men lose their manliness. She turns them into animals, pigs. That is, the sexual appetite is so great, it overwhelms them. They become animals. That power is that great. And don't forget this. Odysseus can't get away from her. This is so crucial. I mean, I want all of you to think about this. He can't get away from her without the help of the gods. Without that molly. And it's really clear he's on Calypso's island. I'm not, I'm, you can disagree with Homer. I happen to believe Homer's right on. I'd say this is a man. Um, Odysseus is on Calypso's island for eight years. He can't get off that island without Hermes' help. What Homer's showing us is no man can get free of that on his own. That's how great, that's how great that power is. Circe is an image of that power insofar as it awakens a sexual desire. It, it awakens that so strongly that, that men have a hard time shaking that animal. I mean, it's, it's what I think Melody is describing. I'm describing it a little bit differently, but, but I think the differences are important. Calypso is an image of that feminine beauty that promises something immortal. It's a transcendent beauty. Paris with Helen. When a man is in the presence of that beauty, it's not just sexual, it will get romantic, it will get beyond sexuality. That there's a longing for something that he finds in the beauty of a woman. You can call all of this romance. Remember when I was talking about the three homes? That I'm, I'm calling the Odyssey the first anti-romantic book in literature. Homer takes away all tendencies to romanticize everything. He's dealing with real realities, hardships, what it takes to come home, to get in a marriage. Now, while you're thinking about this, picture all the picture Lestrigonese Queen, Skill and Crybdis, the Sirens, Circe, Calypso, all these feminine figures. Where's Penelope? 
when you when you think about her, or or even better, when you think put Penelope next to Nestor's wife, put Penelope next to Helen, and those two marriages. Everybody got? Is everybody following me? We got those two marriages in the beginning. Nestor's wife. We never hear from her. Helen, who's living in the past. Penelope. So as we're moving towards the conclusion of this book, we're watching Odysseus having to come to terms with brute male power in the Cyclops and these subtle forms of power that women have that he's, he's got to learn to be aware of in order for him to come home. So um, it, it seems to me that, and remember, Calypso means... Um, conceal, hide. There's something very possessive about both Circe and Calypso. Very possessive. They want him for themselves. For different reasons. They're different, they're different images. Um, and remember, um, what's the book of Calypso? The, the book of Revelation? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Remember we talked about that? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Apocalypse means coming out to reveal. Calypso means conceal. She wants him for herself. It's very possessive. And it's transcendent. Remember, the navel of the waters. She's an image of something divine that every woman, every woman has. Every man has something of God in, but it's, we're talking about a different thing. Every woman images God. Every, we're all made in his image some way. What we're seeing in Calypso is something of that divine beauty that um, that, that man experiences in a woman and, and, and the sexual desires that a woman can awaken in him. Okay. Um, we didn't get to this question, but I want to leave you. I'm going to stop here because I, I, I want to try to be good about leaving you guys going time. Remember that it's Circe... This is this experienced woman sexually, even though she turns men into, she takes away their manliness. She's the one who um, tells him what to do, how to escape the future journey. And by the way, just to put this in perspective, because all this may sound strange to you, most great writers, most great writer, men writers, deal with the prostitute, major figure. Who was it that led... I'm not kidding. I, you, you may find this funny. It's not if you think about it. Who was it that let the men into the promised land? Moses leading an Aaron, you know, coming into the promised land. Who was the one that took them in? It was rehab in the Bible. Prostitute. Prostitute. Bible. Faulkner's last novel, The Reavers, goes to a whorehouse. She's one of the most extraordinary figures. And if you read Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, it's Sonia, a prostitute. She has to go out on the street to save her family. She's the one who helps Raskolnikov turn around. I don't know of a great male writer who hasn't seen in the prostitute some grace when most of the social world looks down at Faulkner's The Town, Reba, is the one who helps turn that book around. Circe is the one who gives Odysseus instructions. Are you guys following? So what I'm doing is to trying to present a paradox that it's so easy to stereotype a person and say, you know, good, bad, or... Um, Odysseus is dealing with archetypes. They're not humans the way... 
he's, he's dealing with aspects of <clears throat> um, our psyche. And it's interesting to me that the, that the two women are, are as different as they are, and it's Circe that helps him get home. Um, next week, we're going to look at the land of the dead. He has to go there, absolutely. He has to deal with the dead before he gets home. So here's my parting question to you guys. What is Odysseus learning? Why are these things essential for a husband to know? Um, we'll try to finish the Odyssey next week. If we don't, we'll try to cover most of it and then finish it up the next week and start on Virgil's Aeneid. So get Virgil's Aeneid. Any comments before we sign off here? If you see any of the other members that used to make up part of our company, I wish you'd corral them and do what you can to get them back. Any? Melody, are you okay to do the next class? Um, no. <laughs> it would be very, very short. <laughs> It's so good to see you guys. I just, honestly, it's so good. And, it, and I love your smiles. I just love your smiles. You guys have a good week. All of you, all of you try to behave. I know that's asking a lot for some of you. Um, and stay safe. Genuinely, genuinely stay, stay safe, okay? Keep Suzanne, and, keep Suzanne and me in your prayers, would you please? We'll pray for you guys. Thank you. Good to see you guys. Yeah. See you next week. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Is that Melody who was giving all the answers? I couldn't tell her voice from Connie's. I forgot remembering to do.